In the 1970s and 80s, a monster hunted the Connecticut River Valley. Seven bodies found, one survivor, and no suspects. I'm Jane Borowski, host of Invisible Tears. I was seven months pregnant and stabbed 27 times, and I survived. My story didn't end that frightful night. This attack on me physically and mentally lingered for years. I'm Amanda Bedard, and I'm Jane's life coach and co-host of Invisible Tears. Jane is ready to share her story, and not just about her attack, but her healing process afterwards. As a platform for truth and healing, we are on a mission to help others that suffer from PTSD and help bring awareness to mental health issues. To hear my story and others, you can find Invisible Tears wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Every town has a dark side. This is Andrew Fitzgerald from the Everytown Podcast, where every single week we dive into insane and mysterious true crime stories, most of which you've never heard of. Stories like the bizarre disappearance of Tyler Davis in Columbus, Ohio, a 29-year-old father trying to find his way back to his hotel when he disappeared and was never heard from again, and Elizabeth Shove from Lugoff, South Carolina, who was abducted from her driveway by a madman and take into his underground bunker in the woods. And we give you all the details you're interested in hearing about without any fluff or fillers, because ain't nobody got time for that. We cover everything from psychopaths to poltergeists. So go check out the Everytown podcast, because every town, no matter how nice it may seem, has a dark side. Top 5 Creepy and Terrifying Unsolved Disappearances Every once in a while, a person can seemingly vanish into thin air, never to be seen again. Here one minute, then gone the next. What exactly happened to them, nobody may ever know, and friends and family can spend the rest of their lives searching for answers. These are 5 Creepy and Terrifying Unsolved Disappearances. Number 5 Lars Mittank. On June 30th, 2014, Lars Mittank had traveled to Bulgaria with several friends for holiday. The group went to Golden Sands, a known party place for young people similar to Ibiza. All of them stayed at the HVD Viva Hotel and planned to head back home to Germany on July 7th. Everything was great and the group was enjoying themselves up until the day before they were about to leave. Lars, who was an avid sports fan, got into a fight with some people who were rooting for his rival football club. What started as a heated argument eventually turned into a brawl. Lars was hit in the ear and suffered a ruptured eardrum. A local doctor examined it and told him it was best that he didn't fly home the next day, and he prescribed him some Saferoxime 500, which is an antibiotic. His friends flew back home while Lars checked into the Color Hotel, which was in a seedier part of town. That evening, he called his mother, telling her that he didn't feel safe and believed he was actually being followed. He claimed four men had been tracking his moves and asked him what tablets he was taking. Lars then instructed his mother to cancel his credit cards, stating that there was something very strange about the hotel. 
Lars's mother bought him a plane ticket, and so the following day he headed to Varna Airport. He was captured on camera talking to a woman, perhaps asking for directions since he was looking for medical services. He proceeds to go inside with his backpack and duffel bag in tow where he spends the next 45 minutes. The doctor was with him when an unknown male dressed in a construction worker's outfit entered the office. Lars became visibly nervous, mumbled something to the doctor, and then bolted out the door without his luggage. Afterwards, he jogs across the parking lot and jumps the fence towards a wooded area. He was seen running in that direction until he was out of view of the camera and since then has never been seen again. Soon after his disappearance, people began to speculate that he may have had a severe brain injury, which caused him to act erratically or become paranoid. Others say he may have had a severe side effect to the medication that he was given. Another theory is that illegal drugs were involved, and that he was either a drug mule or that he had been taking excessive amounts of drugs and suffered some sort of mental breakdown as a result from the binge. Regardless of what happened, authorities and family members have tried searching for him, but to this day, no sign of Lars has ever been found. Number 4. Flannan Isles Lighthouse Keepers it was on December 7, 1900, when James Ducott, Thomas Marshall, and Donald MacArthur arrived at the Flannan Isles Lighthouse in Scotland to kick off their two-week rotation as keepers. Their superintendent, Robert Muirhead, also went with them to make sure that they were settled in and to do a routine check. Afterwards, the men shook hands and the superintendent left. Built in the 1890s, it took four years for this lighthouse to be completed because of the difficulty in hauling in materials. The lighthouse then began operating on December 7th of 1899. No form of communication could be patched through from the mainland, but the lighthouse was constantly monitored by a telescope so that in case the men were in trouble, they could signal for help. The problem with that, however, was that visibility could be hindered from time to time depending on how heavy the fog and mist got. Due to bad weather, a ship named Hesperus, which was to bring relief for the men, was unable to sail as regularly scheduled, but on December 26th it was finally deployed. Once it got to the island, there was no sign of the lighthouse crew anywhere. Joseph Moore headed up to the lighthouse, unlocked the door to get inside, but found no one there. There was no fire in the grate, and it looked like it hadn't been lit in several days. All the clocks had also stopped working, and on the table was a full meal that sat untouched. Also unusual was that two sets of outdoor gear were missing, but a third was left behind. These experienced men knew never to set foot outside without their weather gear, and it was against the rules for all three men to be out of the lighthouse since one always had to be left behind to keep watch. A survey of the island was conducted and damage was noted on the west landing. Iron railings had been bent out of shape and the iron railways along the path were even ripped out of the concrete. And it was then logically concluded that this damage was brought on by the storm. But things took an unusual turn when the logbook was discovered. According to this log, on December 12th, the storm was tearing at lighthouse and that James Ducott irritable. Later that day, the log noted a passing ship sounding a foghorn and that 
Ducat was quiet and Donald MacArthur crying. By December 13th, the storm continued and the log noted that the three men prayed. There was no log entry on the 14th, but on the 15th, it noted that storm ended, sea calm, God is over all. But these log entries are very questionable. First of all, it was unusual for it to contain any personal information, such as someone crying or acting irritable. Moreover, Superintendent Muirhead knew all three men personally and said it was out of character for them to pray. An official investigation was launched and ultimately concluded that it was likely the men were swept away by a freak wave as they attempted to secure things on the West Landing. But those who are a bit more superstitious believe they were transported to another world entirely. People believe the Isle itself draws fearful reverence to those who visit. It contains a 7th century chapel built by St. Flannan, and visitors who go there, despite not being religious, are often moved to circle the church ruins on their knees. To this day, no bodies have been found and no explanation as to the disappearance of the lighthouse keepers has ever been provided. Number 3. Virginia Carpenter 21-year-old Virginia Carpenter was looking forward to starting college. On June 1, 1948, she left her home in Texarkana, Texas, for Texas State College in Denton, where she was planning to become a lab technician. Once in Denton, she hailed a cab that took her to her dorm room named Brackenridge Hall. The taxi driver, named Edgar Zachary, said he dropped her off in front of her housing at 9.30 p.m. As they pulled up, he noticed a cream-colored convertible with two men inside and that they called out to Virginia. According to the driver, it seemed that the girl knew the men as well as she asked them, Well, what y'all doing over here? Virginia paid Edgar and gave him a dollar as well to pick up one more piece of luggage at the train station the following morning because it hadn't arrived yet. He then drove off, and this was the last time that Virginia was ever seen. The following morning, Edgar picked up the luggage and dropped it off in front of Brackenridge Hall, where it lay unopened. Three days later, Virginia's boyfriend called her mother saying he couldn't get in touch with her, and so her mom called the school only to find out that Virginia never checked into campus. She reported her daughter missing, and the two initial suspects authorities were interested in were her boyfriend, Kenny, and the cab driver, Edgar. Kenny was eventually cleared of any wrongdoing. Edgar was then questioned, and he gave his statements, including his description of the two men he had seen with Virginia on the evening he dropped her off. During that initial investigation, Edgar's own wife told police that he was home by 10 p.m. on the night in question. But in 1957, after they had divorced, she changed her story and said that he didn't get home until 2 or 3 a.m., Regardless, Edgar was never charged, and there was never any concrete evidence pointing to him as being involved with Virginia's disappearance. Perhaps the creepiest part about this young girl's story is that she's possibly linked with the Phantom Killer. This serial killer hunted down five victims in Virginia's hometown of Texarkana, and it happened just a year before she disappeared. What's more, Virginia was acquainted with three of the five victims, 
making it likely she moved in the same circles as the killer and possibly became one of their victims too. Number two, Brandon Swanson. During the last day of classes, 19-year-old Brandon Swanson, a freshman at Minnesota West Community College, decided to celebrate with a friend before heading back home to Marshall, Minnesota. On May 14, 2008, just a little after midnight, Brandon called his parents to tell them he accidentally drove his vehicle in a ditch just 10 minutes from the house and that he needed to be picked up. Both parents headed out, but they couldn't find any sign of him or his car. He said that he was flashing his lights, but they couldn't see anything, and with everyone frustrated, he said that he would walk back to Lind, believing that he was near the town. He kept speaking to his parents for almost an hour as he tried to give directions as to where he was. The whole time, he kept walking, until suddenly they heard him shout, Oh shit! Then the line was abruptly cut off. They tried to call him six or seven times, but he never picked up the phone again. The Swansons then called Brandon's friends for help in the search, and they drove around various gravel roads and farmlands trying to locate the teen. By 6 a.m., his parents had officially reported him missing, and while police did offer assistance, it was delayed, citing that it wasn't unusual for a teen his age to not come back home the night after celebrating the end of classes. Eventually, they triangulated the last phone call Brandon had with his parents and discovered it had bounced off a tower 20 miles away. That afternoon, his car was found in Porter, which is about 25 miles away from Lind, where Brandon thought he was. A huge search was conducted in the days following, but investigators could not tell which direction the team took off after leaving his car, so everyone was just guessing. It's possible that he was intoxicated that evening, and so he was disoriented and didn't know where he was. That would also help explain how he ended up in a ditch in the first place. However, it's worth noting that Brandon was legally blind in one eye, and that his friend who was with him before he went home said he had one drink but was not intoxicated. His father also said there were no signs of him drinking or slurring his speech while they spoke on the phone. Others say it was possible he either fell into a hole or even drowned in the Yellow Medicine River, which had a strong current at the time. However, his parents and some of the authorities don't believe any of this at all. They're not ruling out the possibility of foul play, or that he was abducted, but the lack of evidence makes it difficult to tell. In the end, no sign of Brandon Swanson has ever been found, and today his parents still hope to eventually get some answers. Number 1. Dorothy Scott Dull as a phone book is how one friend described the life of 32-year-old Dorothy Scott. She was shy and religious, and she didn't date either, opting to take care of her son and keeping to herself. She was also known to be a hard worker as she served as secretary for Swingers Psych and Head Shop in Anaheim, California. On May 28, 1980, Dorothy took her son to her parents' house so she could attend an employee meeting. While there, a co-worker named Conrad wasn't feeling well. He started developing a red rash on his arm, 
And so Dorothy offered to take him to the hospital along with their fellow co-worker, Pam. Once there, they found out he had an infected Black Widow spider bite. He was treated and released. Pam stayed with Conrad to fill out some paperwork while Dorothy went to bring her car around. However, Dorothy never showed up. Pam and Conrad actually saw the vehicle exit the parking lot at a fast clip. They thought there must have been an emergency at home, but when she didn't come back, they began to worry. They called her parents to see if she was there, but she wasn't and that's when they called the police. Several hours later, Dorothy's car was found abandoned and burning, but Dorothy wasn't inside. As it turns out, she actually had a stalker. For months prior to her disappearance, she had received multiple phone calls from an unidentified male. Sometimes the calls were friendly, but other times he would say things like he was going to cut her up. Dorothy had mentioned this to a co-worker and stated that the voice was familiar but she couldn't place him. The caller also provided details about her daily routine, signifying that he was watching her every move. Dorothy was so unnerved she contemplated buying a handgun a week before she disappeared and also started taking karate lessons. This individual is believed to have continued to taunt and harass her family after she was gone. Dorothy's mother Vera, like clockwork, would receive a phone call every Wednesday for the next four years. The man would say, I've got her, then hang up. Police asked the parents to not mention the disappearance to the media, but after weeks, her father Jacob gave the story to a local newspaper, the Santa Ana Register. The same day the article was run, the editor, Pat Riley, received a call from a man saying that he had killed Dorothy. According to him, Dorothy was his love and that he caught her cheating. He goes on to mention details about the spider bite and what clothes Dorothy was wearing, including the color of her scarf. He also claimed that she called him while at the hospital, but Pam insisted that this didn't happen because she was never out of her sight. By April of 1984, the phone calls finally stopped after Jacob answered it. Apparently, the caller only called every time Vera was home alone. In August that same year, a construction worker discovered a pile of buried bones belonging to a dog. However, under a thin layer of soil were human bones as well as some items. Vera managed to identify a turquoise ring and watch as belonging to her daughter. This watch had stopped on May 29, 1980 at 12.30am, which was the same night that she disappeared. So there were five creepy and terrifying unsolved disappearances. It's extremely unsettling when individuals suddenly vanish without a trace. For these people, their cases remain a mystery, and countless questions about where they are still remain. If you like this video, then please subscribe to our channel and hit the notification bell because each week we'll have a new scary mystery video for you to check out. Thanks for watching, and I'll see you next week.